Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Helen Glue, who's a senior lecturer in history at the University of Westminster, about gender, rhetoric and regulation, women's work in the civil service and the London County Council, 1900 to 1955, which is published by Manchester University Press. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Helen Glue who is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Westminster, about her new book, Gender, Rhetoric and Regulation, Women's Work in the Civil Service and the London County Council, 1900 to 1955, which has been published by Manchester University Press. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think, as, as I said before we started recording, this is a very interesting book for historians, for people interested in uh, bureaucracies, institutions, this kind of stuff. But also it's it's just a kind of very interesting book given um, our sort of contemporary uh, political settlement that we're facing. Um, and I'm very interested to know kind of where the book came from. Was this sort of um, an extension of research you've been doing or was it, you know, a kind of uh, completely new thing you ended up doing? What, what was the sort of uh, driving force behind the book? Um, well, I suppose very originally I got an AHRC collaborative doctoral award um, held between the British Postal Museum and Archive and the Institute of Contemporary British History, which used to be at the IHR and is now at King's College London. And um, I got the scholarship to look at an aspect of um, the history of the post office. And I'd previously worked on um, gender and the First World War in particular. And so I was quite interested to look at women's work and the impact on the First World War and in the, the interwar years. And I'd always been quite interested in the kind of continuities across that period rather than necessarily the changes. I see more continuities and changes in lots of ways. Um, so that was the kind of, I guess, the original impetus behind looking at the post office for my doctorate. Um, but in the course of writing about the post office, I mean, so few people actually have written about the post office as an employer. And in the course of doing that doctoral research, um, I really ended up writing and thinking a lot about the civil service as a whole, because to understand the post office, I had to think about the civil service. Um, so I very much then for the book project wanted to think about the civil service much more widely and then it was actually Professor Martin Daunton in my PhD viber who said, you know what, no one's looked at the LCC. So it was really him that gave me the idea to think about, OK, what can the London County Council, the kind of biggest local authority in London, tell us what's well, the biggest local authority in the country, tell us um, about women's employment um, across this time period and what might it throw up in contrast or kind of to uh, complement the findings I already had. So. Yeah, and I think that's worked out really well, actually, because it's allowed the book to think through, I guess, three sort of core themes. I know you mentioned um, continuities, um, and there are some changes as well. So I guess it'd be interesting to, to kick off with that kind of sense of the three core themes about marriage prohibition, equal pay, and then the segregation of, of roles, occupations, jobs by, by gender. And I wonder if you could sort of briefly introduce those three ideas that, that animate the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so the first two chapters of the book um, explore women's work in the civil service and the London County Council. And um, between the two chapters, I look first of all at the way that women are generally confined to routine work. Um, 
there's a lot of kind of um, arguments put forward that, oh, you know, women are better at routine work. They're more satisfied with it. But really, it's ultimately about the fact that employers can pay women less. So they do. And they very much confine women to routine work um, largely. Um, and it's very much about how can women be best used in this in these services rather than how can we give women good and interesting careers that's very much the philosophy and then the second chapter look at the looks at the segregation of women and, and women's work um looks at women's attempts to try and break through into the high higher ranks and as you suggest um there are some changes throughout the interwar years particularly by the 1930s you are starting to see women at the higher echelons of both these services but um it's a very very um hard one um set of changes it takes a long time for these things to happen um i mean as we see in other occupations as well the civil service isn't unusual in this sense i don't think um and then connected to that, the three themes of the book are very connected. I was very interested in looking at the three things that distinguish men's employment or women's employment from men's. Um, so the second theme is the lack of equal pay, which, of course, is still an issue in so many ways. Um, the exact context may have changed in some ways, but in many ways, the issues are still with us. Um, so I look at essentially the campaign to... Um, get equal pay for women in the civil service, which is finally granted for women who are doing the same work as men in 1955, um, after a long fought campaign that sort of starts around about 1900 and runs right the way through half a century. The LCC is quite similar. They actually take their lead from the civil service in terms of campaigning and eventually do get actually a um, grant equal pay to their staff slightly before the civil service. So there's an interesting kind of game. The two um, institutions are actually in some ways sort of playing with each other. They're kind of, um, you know, one slightly ahead of the other and things like that. So I, that's the second theme of the book. And the third theme um, is the one that in some ways seems to have captured people's imagination the most. Um, looking at the marriage bar, the idea that once a woman married, she had to give up her employment and was thereafter only entitled to temporary employment if if she wanted. But the, the idea of um, a woman being married and having a permanent job um, was not something the civil service or the London County Council wanted to countenance. Um, so I look at the campaign um, to get that abolished, but also the kind of way in which there was some ambivalence amongst women civil servants themselves about what the marriage bar meant and what it signified um, for their lives as a whole. And then I think about um, the numbers of women that just don't fit into the neat single and married categories. So divorced women, um, women whose engagements have broken down, women whose husbands aren't able to work. Um, what do they do You know, through physical or um, other kinds of disabilities? You know, what, what are those women expected to do? So that, they're the kind of big three themes of the book. And uh, yeah, I think we can sort of take them in, in in turn as we get into the uh, the proper detail of the book which, which i should add is, is kind of really um immensely rich in terms of detail there's clearly um an incredible amount of research that's gone gone into it but before that i wonder um if you could talk me through a, a little bit about um the gendered perspective on public service um particularly public service employment um because obviously there's a lot of stuff in both kind of history in org studies in political science about um you know these ideas about being a public servant and public sector employment and stuff like this 
Um, but obviously th this book has got the specific focus on gender. Yeah, um, I think I was very intrigued by the number of times you come across the notion of efficiency in the public service. And there's this sort of built in assumption that men are always going to be more efficient and women are effectively going to be letting the slide down. Um, you also see it, I think, the gendered notions in terms of this absolute determination amongst some civil service departments, not all, but some to really keep the um, higher echelons open to men only and to keep women out. There's a very sort of real sense of protecting these jobs and um, keeping them for men and women kind of not encroaching on the space. And it's actually talked about in terms of encroachment sometimes as well. The, the the other element, because um, actually that that's one of the last questions I'm going to ask you about what it tells us about um, kind of men's fears, uh, essentially about being you know sort of um, in having their spaces invaded and their sort of positions threatened. But but the other thing before we um, really get into the book is is the case study element. <laughs> and I'm interested to know, you mentioned the post office, um, but I'm interested to know why the post office and um, London County Council or the, the LCC were, were, were sort of good case studies for thinking through these ideas. Um, I think the post office um, is crucial in thinking about the civil service. Um, for two reasons, it's the first civil service department to systematically employ women on a large range of work. I mean, we're talking sort of uh, 20, 30,000 women before the First World War employed um, in the post office on various tasks. So they're the first department to employ women. So therefore, they're the ones that come up with a lot of the policies, or at least are tentatively suggesting these policies about employing women. And then when other departments start employing women, um, essentially, the Treasury is telling them to look at what the post office is doing. And um, so effectively, in lots of ways, the post office has quite a big impact beyond its own kind of department in terms of de determining the structures of women's employment. Um, also, because of the fact that it was the first department to um, really systematically employ women, um, there's this kind of rumour that gets peddled around this myth that's sort of been sustained in various um, arenas and publications that the post office was actually quite forward thinking and progressive in terms of women's employment. Um, and that may have been true in the 1870s and 1880s when it first started out. But by the time we get to the early 20th century, that's really not the case. So I kind of wanted to demonstrate that as well um, in the book. I mean, I think the post office is also good because um, of the range of work the women are doing. They're doing um, sort of skilled manual work they're doing clerical work they're doing higher level work and then of course we always have the cleaners and the domestic staff that appear in all kinds of civil service departments as well so the range there is really broad um and it makes and it means that then i can use other civil service departments as an interesting counterpoint because some of them are much more forward thinking and are much more relaxed about um or relaxed to a point about um women's employment and giving women opportunities um, the civil service, uh, sorry, the uh, London County Council um, is just interesting because um, it, it was the largest local authority in the country, and it also um, it also has the big range of employment of women as well, like the post office. But it also 
in some ways looking at the civil service, but then is also trying to sort of come up with some of its own ideas about women's employment. And I think it's interesting what it borrows from the government or the civil service effectively as the as an employer and what it comes up with by itself. Um, and particularly, I think when we think of the LCC, there are certain periods in its history where it's very is very much seen as progressive and forward thinking. And I kind of wanted to test that out in terms of women's employment as well. And the people who are passing these policies are theoretically sometimes quite progressive, but does is that actually borne out um, in in terms of the way women are treated as employees? Just to pick up on on that, obviously you, you talked, you know, you referenced several times this idea of kind of you know particular jobs for women, women's work, women's employment. What what are we actually talking about there? Particularly, I guess through the lens of um, the kinds of jobs that were seen as appropriate for women, the kinds of jobs that were were seen as you know inappropriate, and what women were stopped from doing, and then mm-hmm. how this was, um, I guess, sort of challenged or. Um, possibly resisted over um, that 50-year period? Yeah, so um, in a lot of civil service departments and indeed the LCC, women are doing um, clerical work, but the kind of the most routine levels, so filing, typing, um, shorthand writing. Um, Also, they're doing, particularly in the post office, but other departments as well, telephone operating uh, telegraphs working on the post office counters. Um, So they are doing a wide range of work, but it's often at the sort of lowest levels of um, the kind of work that's available. Um, Women do supervise, get to supervisory positions, but again, they're often supervising women because the argument is, well, you can't have a woman supervising men because that's kind of not the natural order of things and no man would take orders from, from a woman. Um, You also have um, a whole tranche of um, types of work where women are in sort of welfare type roles looking after other women. So they'll be inspectors of factories and shops, working in employment exchanges to um, help women find jobs and sort of um, listen to their needs, etc. So there's quite an interesting way in which women are doing routine work, but also very gendered work um, as well. Um, In terms of things starting to change, um, really, it's a combination of women activists in the civil service. There are a couple of um, women's unions, uh, women's associations in the civil service who um, are very vocal um, about the fact that they want absolute equality with men. And, you know, why, why are all where, why do we essentially have all of these gendered reasons for holding women back? Um, another important intervention that actually is true for quite a lot of the themes I explore in the book is the Royal Commission on the Civil Service in the late um, 1920s. Um, and re- it reports in 1931. And so you essentially have um, notable people, um, MPs and um, other professionals from other walks of life who are appointed to question the civil service about what it's doing. Um, The LCC also gives evidence as well as a kind of supplementary example. Um, And so what you have is quite an interesting set of quite tense exchanges between some civil service officials and the Royal Commission and civil service officials are effectively justifying why women are sort of employed in these sort of little pockets and boxes and don't have the same opportunities as men and after a while this rhetoric just 
cannot hold. Um, and it's very much the work of the Royal Commission. I mean, they're not, they're by no means totally supportive of the expansion of women's work, but they realize, they effectively say to the civil service, you can't kind of, you can't keep doing this. Um, this, um, this rhetoric just doesn't work. So, yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, really well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, Treasury comes out of comes out of this story quite quite badly. I think um, it does. Yeah, yeah, as, as a as a specific civil service institution that really um, you know is one of the big barriers to to change. So you mentioned the Royal Commission, and obviously that's um, an important part of one of um, the middle chapters of the book. I wonder if you could sketch out um, some of the other elements of equal um, pay campaigns, um, maybe thinking through how um, how things had changed by the mid-1950s, the kind of, I guess, the sort of early years of, of equal pay. Yeah. Um, so as a whole, the civil service is massively resistant to the idea of um, women having equal pay. Um, very much across the board. I talk in the book about how in the First World War there are actually potentially cases where women could get equal pay, but the civil service, the Treasury, ultimately finds a way to refuse that. And pretty much at every turn they're saying no. They actually move women from doing some of the same work as men to different work so that the justification for equal pay is lost. Um, they continually say, well, women leave for marriage, so why should we pay them the same as men, forgetting the fact that they had a marriage bar in the first Place. They were very blind to that idea. Um, and again, um, it's having to justify um, itself to the Royal Commission that the, the Treasury sort of starts having a hard time. Um, the Treasury, the, the Royal Commission um, is not going to recommend equal pay um, ultimately, but um, it's this same idea of having to justify over and over again why women are not paid um, equally with men. Interestingly, this is where the LCC is quite interesting uh, as an interesting counterpoint, um, because when it starts employing women after the First World War on its higher in, on its higher grades, um, it actually does give them equal pay with men because it says, well, effectively, it's only a few women and we have no reason not to give them equal pay. We, we have no experience of women doing this work. So let's just see. So they take very much the reverse argument, whereas the Treasury would have said, oh, we can't trust women to be as efficient as men. They say, well, we've got no evidence either way. So let's give them equal pay and we'll see. Um, so there's a a sort of greater clamouring after the Royal Commission reports in 1931. Um, so I, I think what's really interesting about the equal pay campaigns in the civil service is I think that the moral argument is pretty much won by the end of the 1930s because um, you, ha you have all kind of all kinds of rhetoric about. Um, women's efficiency, efficiency, women take more sick leave, women always are going to be leaving for marriage and we're not sure that men, that women really do jobs as well as men. We, you have all of this. But then what becomes more prominent in this is the idea that the country can't afford it. And, you know, there are certain points in the 1930s where you could actually say, yeah, that actually might be true given the financial state of the country. You could, you know, that argument maybe some somewhat holds up at certain points in the 1930s. But that argument is the one that becomes stronger, that the, the country just can't afford it. And the other arguments about women's efficiency and the very gendered stereotyped ideas start to disappear. There are quite a lot of... Um, 
very publicised debates in the House of Commons in the middle of the 1930s, which generate a lot of press and actually a lot of ridicule uh, towards um, the financial secretary to the Treasury and various other members of the Treasury and ultimately the government as well. Um, Equal pay is always portrayed as ultimately this is a government decision. Um, So royal commissions and and all other bodies couldn't get involved. They couldn't go to arbitration, etc., Um, I think the Second World War is quite interesting in the equal pay story in the sense that you do have women obviously taking on even greater responsibility than they had um, during uh, the First World War. And the equal pay campaign is really galvanised in the Second World War by the Equal Pay Campaign Committee, which comes actually comes out of the campaign for or is revitalised, I should say, by the campaign for um, equal compensation for war injuries. A number of the same women MPs um, essentially re-energised the fight for equal pay. Um, I should say, of course, that unions have been largely pressing for equal pay for women throughout the interwar years, although there are some male-dominated unions who aren't necessarily quite sure about the merits of equal pay at all times. Um, And so what we see after the Second World War is very much this notion that the country can't yet afford equal pay, but we kind of we kind of see that the Treasury is in some ways accepting the kind of justice of the arguments because they don't try to fight back in terms of um, women are less efficient and all of the stereotyped ideas. And then it almost becomes a kind of war of attrition in terms of the unions just keeping going and the Treasury saying, no, we can't do it, we can't do it yet. Um, And then eventually by... um, by 1955, it, I mean, it's essentially a political decision in lots of ways in terms of um, the Conservative government wants to win the next election, so promises women equal pay in 54, and then the settlements worked out by 55. I mean, what I think is fascinating here as well is that the LCC um, quietly in 1952 just gives all of its women um, equal pay. Um, you know, all of the women besides the ones who've already been getting equal pay and just quietly does this. And the civil service is actually really cross about this um, because it's seen um, they're seen as having jumped the gun when there's always been this tacit understanding that the government will go first and give equal pay to the civil service. And that's the kind of going to be the watershed moment. And then the LCC essentially trumps them and the government's left very embarrassed. You touched upon and sort of gestured to the um, sometimes subtle but usually quite um, unsubtle and clear gender assumptions that um, underpin decisions about not paying equal pay um, as well as these these financial arguments. I guess they're you know, most manifest when we think about marriage and the assumption of um, women essentially kind of exiting employment. Mm-hmm. upon marriage and that's obviously the you know the kind of um uh, back end of the book that deals with this so i wonder if you could talk me through a bit about um the marriage bar um what sort of assumptions underpinned it maybe how it how it changed um a little bit over time and then obviously as as one of the concluding chapters does um how was it if not challenged but um, one of the things I liked actually towards the end of the book was the sense of there were l- well, lots of women who just didn't fit into these kind of clear categories um, that the marriage bar um, assumed um, they could divide up 
um, women in the civil service into? Yeah, the marriage bar is is fascinating to me in so many ways. Um, so it's actually, of course, the post office that first uh, develops the idea of the marriage bar for the civil service. And of course, it's been sort of customary slash assumed that women, particularly middle class women, are going to give up work on marriage in kind of late Victorian discourse. But the civil service is the first um, department, sorry, the post office is the first civil service department to kind of um, create a policy for this. Um, what's fascinating is that all of the arguments there are very much about um, social expectations of women and we couldn't possibly have a pregnant woman working, but also we can't expect women to not have children because that's, quote, unnatural. Um, and so there are all these kinds of reasons why, um, based on kind of women's supposed family responsibilities and role as ultimately wife and mother, why the they don't want married women working for the post office. Um, a number of historians and sociologists have sort of suggested that there's this economic um, basis for the marriage bar as well, in the sense that um, it creates turnover. And so um, as women leave for marriage, they're replaced with people who start at the very bottom of the pay scale. I'm not actually necessarily convinced by that argument because um First of all, after they'd been there for a certain length of time, they were entitled to what was called a marriage gratuity or sometimes a dowry payment, kind of a lump sum payment. And the time it took to train replacements was probably also, you know, really not efficient for the business either. So I'm not sure on the economic arguments, but the econo economic arguments are made sometimes um, with regard to this. Um, but essentially, a lot of the arguments about the marriage bar are about a woman can't serve two masters. That's pretty much a direct quote from one of the um, documents in support of the marriage bar. Um, and it should be said that a number of women, you know, join the civil service or indeed the LCC knowing that um, they were just going to do this job for a few years because ultimately they wanted to get married and have children or had perhaps been socialised into sort of thinking that that was what their role was going to be. So there's a kind of a lot of interesting ambivalence amongst um, women employees themselves about this. By the time we get to the late 1930s, the mood is very much let women decide for themselves. Um, and that idea of let women decide for themselves had been the argument of the Federation of Women's Civil Servants, um, later the National Association of Women's Civil Servants, all the way through. They said, you know, it's up to women to decide um, what they what they want to do. And I, I get the feeling from some of the documentation I've read that after a while, the Treasury was starting to think that the marriage bar was perhaps more trouble than it was worth, um, because, again, they were having to justify it. And the reasons looked more and more spurious. The statistics they were producing didn't actually necessarily show that loads more women were leaving for marriage compared to men. Um, who were leaving for other reasons. And so the argument about inefficiency of women, you know, wasn't necessarily holding up because just as many men were leaving. Um, and as you say, that, that there are all of these exceptions, the women that don't fit neatly into the married or single category. And they spent so much time coming up with policies that would, on the one hand, be reasonably fair sometimes to these women who were in difficult situations, but that would also kind of still uphold the marriage bar. And at various points, it almost gets pushed kind of to breaking point. And um, what is interesting about um, the final discussions in 1944, 45, 46 about the marriage bar and its future is the fact that many of this, the Treasury officials are effectively saying, 
the marriage bar is at breaking point. We either have to keep it as it is. We can't make any more changes to it because otherwise the whole kind of rhetorical premise behind it is just going to fall apart. Um, so what I should say as well is that, of course, um, in the First World War and Second World War, the marriage bar is suspended. Um, and there are also various points in the 1930s where the post office um, in particular and the Ministry of Labour are looking for uh, part-time married women who've previously been on their staffs to come and fill um, staff shortages that they have in local areas. So there's also a sense in which, you know, concerns about women's true role can be completely swept aside in national emergencies like war or when there is a real kind of temporary labour crisis. Um, and so uh, the marriage bar is a finally abolished in 1946, um, in both the LCC and the civil service and the civil service discussions are, as I say are really interesting because you have very divided opinions amongst the senior officials themselves and this real sense of are we really going to keep this going and a sense in which the second world war particularly with the conscription of women the mobilization of married women into all kinds of roles there's a real sense in which the government just can't can't see itself um or can't really see a way to keep the marriage bar going, particularly as it's also crying out for women to work in factories and to stay in some of the um, war industries that are kind of still adjusting into peacetime and their, their peacetime economic setting. So, um, yeah, the marriage bar's yeah, just, just fascinating to me in terms of um, the way it's sustained beyond the point of reasonableness at some points. And then finally, the Second World War gives people, the, uh, senior officials, the chance to really think, do we really want to keep doing this and actually look at the wider context of um, the Second World War and women within that? The, the thing that's sort of implicit in the book and... I think you deal with this maybe on like the very last or perhaps the last but, uh, but one page of the book is what all of this tells us about um, the idea of masculinity in the civil service, which, you know, the civil service, um, LCC and the post office are structured in really deeply masculine ways with assumptions about um, what kind of household structure will facilitate the sorts of, you know, uh, characters and chaps that can be employed and all of these kind of things. So I wonder if um, you could give a couple of comments maybe about what this study tells us about the uh, perhaps kind of unacknowledged or um, often silent um, ideas about masculinity in the civil service. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, as I was writing the conclusion and thinking thinking about this masculinity question, it sort of occurs to me, of course, this could be a book in and of itself. Yeah, definitely. Someone else to write, not me. It really but, should uh, be, I think. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of uh, masculinity, I think, I mean, I think it's very interesting some of the language you get around when women enter the workplace, um, both in wartime and in peacetime. And it's very much this idea of um, encroachment and what are we going to do now because, um, you know, the, the, the atmosphere is different. Um, all of the concerns about women supervising men are very much ultimately about masculinity and kind of um, hierarchies between men and women. Um, so, yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's... Um, 
I think thinking about what it says about masculinity is is, is important, as you say. Um, I, th- I think as well, um, it ultimately shows the fact that there are s- these rules around women's employment that just really don't exist around men sort of shows that men are considered to be the default employees and women are there sort of by the grace of the fact that they can be employed cheaply and there are, there's work that they can do by and large. Um, oh, you know, by and large, it's work that they can do for um, for the civil service and the civil service can make use of them and their skills. Um, so it's sort of the kind of masculine culture to which women are very much added. Um, does that make sense? It, it does, yeah. And, and I think the book illustrates that really well with, you know, even the kind of um, basic assumptions about um, a woman's place in society, particularly middle class women, mm. produces a whole, you know, as we've just discussed in the final two chapters, a whole raft of kind of bureaucratic problems um, about how will these institutions respond to what are essentially kind of gendered assumptions about how society should be organised. Um, yeah. I guess the kind of like, it's the curse of academia that, you know, you finish a book, it's wonderful, brilliant, everybody celebrates it, and then the next mm-hmm. question is, so what are you working on next? Um, but what are you working on next? <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to be asked. Um, I am actually um, writing a book very, very slowly, um, but it will eventually be a book on uh, the marriage bar um, in society more widely or kind of as a kind of social and cultural history of the marriage bar. Um, As I said earlier in the interview, I think it was the is the marriage bar chapters that really capture people's imaginations when I did conference papers and things like that. because of this kind of bureaucratic stupidity, frankly, at times, and the fact that it, it it involves women having to be so personal about their lives to sort of claim their jobs back in a way that you know they they have to answer answer questions that men never would have. That's another interesting point about masculinity and femininity, I guess, in the service. Um, and it struck me as I was kind of finishing the book um, that there were several of us who have written about the marriage bar um, in various different contexts. Um, Alison Oram for Women Teachers, Kate Murphy on Women in the BBC and uh, several others as well. But it's always been written about in the sense of within institutions and workplaces, which makes sense because, you know, that's where you find the records and institutional policies um, you know, are very specific to a particular place. But what I wanted to do was look at why is there so much debate about the marriage bar? You know, why did I find so much discussion about the marriage bar when I was writing this book? So what I'm working on now is a kind of broader social and cultural history of the marriage bar between about 1880 and 1960, because that's when it's kind of operative and the wider questions about married women's right to work. Um, And it's going to have an international dimension as well, because I think there is some really interesting um, discussion to be had about the way it operates in different countries. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Helen Blue about gender, rhetoric and regulation, women's work in the civil service and the London County Council, 1900 to 1955.